Be seated. As you're doing so, please take your Bible and open up to Ruth chapter 2. We will continue our Advent series through the book of Ruth. You could say the gospel according to Ruth. The only book of the Old Testament named after a non-Jew, the book of Ruth. As you're turning there, I do want to remind you also that we will have Christmas Eve service here at the church, 5 p.m., and Christmas morning, Sunday, December 25th at 10.30. So we uh, look forward to that and invite you to join us, use that opportunity to invite family, friends, neighbors who may uh, normally be averse to coming to church, but culturally feel compelled to do so because of the holiday. Uh, we'll take advantage of that, and we'll give them the gospel. So invite uh, everyone you know, Christmas Eve and Christmas morning. Ruth chapter 2, and we'll read the whole chapter. The Holy Spirit says this, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, Yahweh be with you. And they answered, Yahweh bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink that the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Yahweh repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. 
So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it to her to glean and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening and then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by Yahweh, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray now that you would come let us adore him, Christ the Lord. And we pray in his name and by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say that I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. Imagine no possessions. I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger. A brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will live as one. These, of course, are the lyrics to John Lennon's Imagine, and Lennon imagined a world where there was no geopolitical borders, there were no possessions, there was no religion, there was no concept of eternity. Imagine all the people living life in peace, Lennon wrote. The song was penned in 1971. And now, 51 years later, Imagine is one of the most celebrated and covered songs of all time. And for many, the song Imagine is the consummate 
symbol of the pursuit of world peace. You may remember, uh, Pastor Kevin alluded to the, the three months of, you know, shutdown or whatever at the beginning of the pandemic, and a bunch of celebrities put out a video of them all singing John Lennon's Imagine, and it was the most tone-deaf video in the history of the world. All these millionaires and billionaires living in giant mansions, you know, come on, so silly. But, but there's a reason, I mean, it's been 51 years, and people love this song, right? This song isn't going away. It's one of the most covered songs of all time. There's a reason why so many people in our culture connect with this song. Because there is no peace in our world. There is suffering. There is pain. There is death. But there is no peace. Because people are created in the image of God, we long for peace inherently. We want peace. We know peace is a good thing. We long for peace in the world. We long for peace in our nation. We long for peace in our homes, in our families, in our relationships. We long for peace in our own hearts and minds. That's not only true for us today, but it was true for God's people in the ancient Near East. Israel longed for peace. Ruth and Naomi were longing for peace. And Ruth chapter 2 that we just read gives us a glimpse of the true and final peace that God will bring through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is our sermon summary for this morning. Jesus is our Redeemer who restores peace between God and his people at his first advent, and Jesus will restore peace to the world at his second advent. I'll give you that one more time. Jesus is our Redeemer who restores peace between God and his people at his first advent, advent, and Jesus will restore peace to the world at his second advent. The first thing we notice about this pericope, though, is a distinct absence of peace. There's an absence of peace. There was an absence of peace among God's people nationally, Israel, and also with Ruth and Naomi personally. So I want you to note that the book of Ruth is written during the time of the judges, and Ruth and Naomi's personal situation is mirroring the national situation among the people of God. We are clued in to this, this lack of peace in general, from Ruth 1.1. Pastor Kevin noted it last week that the narrator tells us that the pericope is set in the time of the judges, Ruth 1.1, in the days when the judges ruled. So Ruth and Judges are set in the same time period. And uh, last week, uh, Pastor Kevin also made note of the last book in, or last verse in the book of Judges, which tells us or summarizes the chaos that is happening during the time of the book of Ruth. Judges 21:25 says, "In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes." We recently read through the book of Judges in our scripture-wide uh, 
Bible reading or church-wide scripture reading plan that Pastor Andrew alluded to, and that theme is just recapitulated over and over again, isn't it? Um, the, the book of Judges is like last verse, same as the first. You know, you're just reading the same thing over and over again. And the refrain is summarized in that there's no king in Israel, and so everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. This is the setting for the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is set somewhere between Joshua's death and Saul's coronation. So if you're thinking about the the narrative of redemptive history, somewhere between 1400 BC and 1000 BC. And the idolatry and the debauchery that happens during the time of the judges indeed makes this one of the darkest periods in all of Israel's history. There are a few bright spots of judges who followed Yahweh, but in general, there was no godly leadership in Israel. Everyone was doing whatever was right in his own eyes because there was no king. We see that, okay, that's, that's, that's kind of like the bird's eye view of what's going on, and we see it played out in the book of Ruth. Remember last week, uh, Elimelech, Eli who is Naomi's late husband, leaves Israel, leaves the promised land to go to Moab because there's a famine. What's funny is his name means God is king. El, God, and Melech means king. So his name means God is king, but he's living like God isn't the king, right? He's doing whatever he wants. He's sinning. He's going into a covenantally cursed land. He's leaving the promised land. Um, there is no king, so he's doing whatever is right in his own eyes. And the result is a lack of peace for Ruth and Naomi. Both of their husbands are dead. As far as they know, all of their male relatives are dead. And in a patriarchal ancient Near Eastern culture, this meant that both Ruth and Naomi are as good as dead. Again, I don't need to re-preach last week's sermon, but this was their case. This is why they have no peace. Women were not viewed as full citizens in the ancient Near East. Women could not own their own property. So Ruth and Naomi did not have any men to provide for them or advocate for them. They had no voice in the community. Their husbands were dead, but they were as good as dead. But it's always darkest before the dawn, and in this deep darkness, a light breaks through. We saw a glimpse of it last week at the end of chapter 1 when they came back to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And then Ruth 2.1 opens with this, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man, whose name was Boaz. The narrator is cluing us in on something here that the characters don't know yet. In Ruth 1, 11 through 13, Naomi told Ruth and Orpah that she didn't have any male relatives for them to marry. That's why she said they should just go back to their families and go back to their gods. But in Ruth 2, 1, the Spirit reveals to us that Naomi's late husband has a worthy relative, a man who can redeem their situation, a man who can provide for, and for them and protect them in that culture. 
a worthy man. And so this is kind of like a little did she know moment for Naomi. So Naomi said, we don't have anything. And the narrator says, well, just hold on. Just wait. Okay, stay tuned. This is what Ruth and Naomi do know, though. They know that they need to eat. Because if they don't eat, they're going to die. And so Ruth asks Naomi if she can go glean in the fields. She was a, a poor widow. She didn't have any children. And so this would be a common practice where the, where, um, the, the, the widows, the, the uh, foreigners, the, the, um, the weaker than, the, the, those who were in society who could not provide for themselves, they were allowed to come and glean in the fields after they've already been reaped. Um, and so Deuteronomy 24:19, this is part of the law, says, when you reap your harvest in the field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that your, Yahweh your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. That's Deuteronomy 24, 19. So God required his people to be generous and to care for those in need. It was not an option. It was a requirement. Why? Because generosity is a result of a heart that's changed by the gospel. In our culture, generosity is often emphasized at this time of the year. Even this past Wednesday night, Bethany and I went to the Fisher Theater to see Hamilton, and after the show, the, all the actors came out, and they were you know, like asking for people to donate to this third-party cause and everything. They're trying to take advantage of the holiday season when people think about giving and people think about generosity around the holidays. But God's people should be generous all the time. We should be marked by generosity. So a good question for us to ask ourselves this morning, for you to ask yourself is, am I generous with my money? If you don't give, if you don't give, if you're not generous, you don't give to the church, you should reflect on whether or not you even know Jesus. That's how serious this is. If you don't regularly give to the church, then that might be a sign that, that you're not a Christian. Jesus gave everything for his people, and Jesus calls us to give, to be generous. And that was Ruth's only hope. Ruth's only hope was the generosity of God's people. Because Ruth may be the most vulnerable person in Israel at this time. Think about this. Ruth was poor. She was a widow. She was childless. And she was a Moabite. There is no one more likely to be abused or ignored than Ruth during this time in Israel's history. But Ruth had made a confession of faith. We saw that last week in chapter 1. And now Ruth is living in light of that confession of faith. In chapter 1, she told Naomi, Your God shall be my God. Ruth doesn't just say that she trusts in God and then sit on her hands. Ruth believes that God is faithful and that God will provide, and then she acts in accordance with that faith. She trusts and she obeys. It's not an obedience apart from faith, like a, like a legalism or a works righteousness. It's not an antinomian faith without obedience. It is faith 
and obedience. Trust and obey. The absence of peace that we see here for Ruth and Naomi and the the absence of peace in Israel in general at the time of the judges, though, is not unique. This has been true for the whole world ever since the fall. Ever since Adam sinned in the garden, death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 5.12. Romans 8 says that the creation itself is in bondage and is crying out for the resurrection of the sons of God. To quote the Advent hymn, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, says, and in despair I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Because this is a universal reality, I know that to one degree or another, this is true for every one of us. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian which means that you, you don't have any inner peace. You can't. It's not possible. You are not right with God. Ephesians 2.1 says that you are spiritually dead. Maybe you are a Christian, but you're suffering with illness or pain. Maybe there's a lack of peace in your marriage. Maybe you've been divorced or widowed. Maybe there's no peace in your family with your parents or your siblings or your kids or your grandkids. Maybe you're struggling financially. Maybe you're struggling with loneliness. Regardless of the specifics, we are all keenly aware of the reality that we need peace. But this world offers no peace. Sin and suffering have invaded our world and they have ravaged every one of us. No one is unscathed. The Loganow family is feeling that right now. And I would bet to one extent or another that you are too. But as Pastor Kevin reminded us last week, There is hope. What the book of Ruth foreshadows and what Advent reveals is that peace arrives in Bethlehem. Ruth 2 prepares us for the peace of Advent with two themes here. Providence and a Redeemer. Let's look at those two themes. Okay, so we saw the absence of peace. Now we're looking at the advent of peace. If you like to take notes. Under the advent of peace, we see two themes, providence and a redeemer. The book of Ruth is saturated with God's providence. It's everywhere. Ruth 2.3 says that Ruth happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Ruth, or verse 4 says, Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Scripture does this. It uses this language a bit tongue-in-cheek. Oh, Ruth just happened to go to Boaz's field. Oh, behold, Boaz just happened to show up that day, which he wouldn't have done every day. Just because he was the owner of the field doesn't mean he would have been there every day. He would have been 
in the city. He would have been in Bethlehem. He would have been doing things, but he just happened. Behold, he showed up. It's a way of saying, what a coincidence. It's a way of saying, this is no coincidence at all. The point is that none of this is happening randomly, that none of this is happening coincidentally, that everything happens for a reason. God is meticulously sovereign, and God governs every aspect of history and the natural order. So listen to what the Westminster Confession of Faith says about providence. This is chapter 5, paragraph 1 from the Westminster. God who created everything also upholds everything. He directs, regulates, and governs every creature, action, and thing from the greatest to the least by his completely wise and holy providence. He does so in accordance with his infallible foreknowledge and the voluntary, unchangeable purposes of his own will all to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. God is providentially governing the big picture realities as we see in the book of Judges. Nations and rulers and wars and governments while he is simultaneously governing the mundane details of every individual's life as we see in the book of Ruth. Big picture, individual. God leads Ruth to the right place at the right time. And the same is true for us today. We can and should rest in the scrupulous sovereignty and providence of God. There is great peace in the doctrine of providence. There is peace that comes in believing that wherever you are in life, whatever is happening to you right now, it is not by accident. God is causing it. God is sovereign over it. Trust the Lord. If you're in sin, repent. Stop complaining. The greatest anecdote to a complaining heart is to understand the providence of God. Stop complaining. God is sovereign. Sometimes his providence is bitter. Sometimes his providence is sweet. Either way, God is sovereign. God is good. And God is working all things for his glory and for the good of his people. Trust him, obey him, rest in him, and find peace in his providence. That's the first theme, is providence. The second theme is this redeemer. Because Ruth 2 doesn't only prepare us for the peace of Advent by the doctrine of providence, but Ruth 2 also gives us a shadow now of the redeemer. You see, in God's providence, he uses Boaz as a type of the future Prince of Peace. Charles Spurgeon said, Jesus is our glorious Boaz. Boaz typifies Christ in two ways. Boaz typifies Christ 
in who Boaz is and what Boaz does. So by his, by his character, by his reputation, and then by his actions. By virtue of who he is and what he does. Verse 1 of Ruth chapter 2 tells us Boaz is a worthy man. He's a worthy man. The word worthy is the Hebrew word gibor, and it means strong, mighty, warrior. Boaz is worthy. Boaz is strong. Boaz is mighty. Boaz is a warrior. This word, gibor, is the same word that's used in Isaiah 9, 6 of Jesus Christ. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, here's the word, Mighty God, Gibor, God, Strong, Mighty, Warrior, God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Boaz's character will be revealed as we continue to preach through the book of Ruth. But as we're introduced to him, as the, this is the first time we hear of Boaz in the book of Ruth, he is described with an adjective that is also used of Jesus Christ. He is worthy. He is strong. He is mighty. He is a warrior. He is Gibor. Boaz stands in contrast to Naomi's husband, who was a selfish coward, who left the promised land for Moab, and who allowed his sons to marry unbelievers. He was not worthy. He did what was right in his own eyes, but not Boaz. Boaz has a reputation as a worthy man. Of course, we know Boaz is not perfect, right? Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Boaz has a reputation. He's above reproach. He's a worthy man. Boaz, for us, in his character, in his reputation, is a shadow of Jesus, who is the mighty God Isaiah spoke of. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity, who, in his incarnation, was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And Jesus is truly the only worthy human who has ever lived. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus lived a truly human life, yet without sin. 2 Peter 1.1 says that our faith stands on the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived the life that we were supposed to live. God is perfect. God is holy, and God requires holiness from his creatures. In Leviticus 11, 44 and 45, that's echoed in 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, God commands us, be holy as I am holy. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Christ commands us, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. The problem is, as we confessed earlier, that we are sinners who sin. 
We have broken the law of God in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We need a representative who will obey God's law in our place. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus is the true and better Boaz who is the only worthy human to ever live. So Boaz shadows Christ by his character, by who he is, and, but also by what he does, by his actions. Boaz brings peace to Ruth and Naomi. Boaz shows Ruth grace. Ruth is a Moabite. You know, sometimes when we're, when we're reading something like the book of Ruth, we rightfully think about, um, you know, how... how uh, she was vulnerable, and she needed to be cared for, and these things are true, right? We see this play out. But let's not forget the other side of this. Ruth is from Moab. Moab is a group of people who were covenantally cursed by the Lord, because, justly, because of their sin, their idolatry. And Ruth is guilty. Now, Ruth has come by faith, but Ruth is a Moabite. By genealogy, and inwardly, Ruth is a Moabite, just like I am, just like you are. And even though Ruth doesn't deserve it, Boaz protects her, and he provides for her. Boaz protects Ruth by telling her to stay in his field and by warning all of the men that work for him to keep their hands off of her. Boaz must have had some Southern Baptist preachers working for him. <laughs> Keep your hands off them women, man. Come on. Boaz protects her. He also provides for her. He feeds her. He gives her leftovers to take home. Not only does Boaz allow Ruth to continue to glean in his field, but he also has men bundle up some extra bundles for Ruth to take home. So Boaz goes even beyond what the law requires. He sends her home with more food that she could have ever earned on her own. And verse 12 makes, ex makes it explicit here that Boaz is bringing peace to Ruth's life. Look again at verse 12. It says, this is Boaz talking to Ruth. He says, Yahweh repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by Yahweh, the God of Israel under whose wings you have come to take refuge. The word repay here, this is in the ESV, Yahweh repay you. That word, repay, it's the same root as the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom, does, it means peace. Shalom means peace. Shalom does not, but when shalom says peace, it doesn't refer to merely a lack of conflict, right? That's one aspect of peace. But shalom has a more broad meaning. It, it means to be whole, to be complete, to be right. So what he's saying is Yahweh will give you shalom because you've taken refuge under his wings. Yahweh will make you whole, complete, and right because you've taken refuge under his wings. And what Boaz is doing is he's making Ruth's life more whole, 
more complete, more right at his own expense. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Matthew 5.9. Romans 12.18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So if we take those two commands, right, those are explicit imperatives here. Well, Jesus isn't, in, his, his statement is not an imperative, but, but we want to be called the sons of God, so we want to be peacemakers. And we take that biblical concept of shalom, of peace, that which we lost in the garden, that which will be restored in the new creation, and that which through Christ now we're trying to live and work out. If we are to be peacemakers, and if we are to live peaceably with all, that does not merely mean that we want to avoid conflict at all costs. That's not what it means to be a peacemaker. That's not what it means to live peaceably. What it does mean is that we are to do everything we can to make each other's lives more whole, more complete, more right. That starts most ultimately with the gospel, and we'll get there in a minute, but that starts in our homes, and then in our church, and then with our neighbors. And so to be a peacemaker, dads, in your home, doesn't mean a lack of discipline. It means godly discipline so that your children can be more whole, more complete, more right. It means sometimes we have to have hard conversations with each other. It means that, that pastors have to defend the flock against wolves. Do not misunderstand what the peace commands in Scripture mean. They don't mean no conflict. They mean to be a peacemaker means to make things right, to make them complete, to make them whole. And this most ultimately, church, starts with the gospel. It is because Ruth has taken refuge under the wings of Yahweh that she will have peace through this Redeemer. That night when Ruth gets home, she tells Naomi what happened, and Naomi remembers that Boaz is their relative. And thus, one of the Redeemers, one of their Redeemers, that's verse 20. There's some uh, Aramaic commentary, I think maybe in the Targum, that says, that Ruth and Naomi didn't know it, but when, when Ruth showed up at Boaz's field, she was showing up for her appointment, that God had appointed this. Again, providence. We know this is true. Boaz is their redeemer. So, so, so what are we seeing in Ruth 2? Right? Because we, we tell you this every week, that the whole Bible is about Jesus and that doesn't just mean that we're tacking on a gospel call at the end of a sermon that isn't about Jesus, or that we're trying to make Jesus fit in some weird way in the Old Testament. So let me show you how organically Ruth 2 is about Jesus. It is through the grace of the Redeemer that the foreign rebel experiences peace with God. You see that? That describes Boaz in the situation, and it describes exactly what Jesus has come to do. It is through the grace of the Redeemer that foreign rebels experience peace with God. Church, we call this the gospel. This is why this is the gospel according to Ruth, because it is through his death and resurrection that Jesus Christ pours out his grace on us. 
Boaz provided for Ruth's needs. Through the gospel, through his death and resurrection, Jesus provides for our greatest need, the forgiveness of our sins and the hope of eternal life. Boaz protects Ruth from the threats of men who would abuse her or dying of hunger. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus protects us from our greatest threat. And let me tell you this, the greatest threat to every human being who's ever lived is to experience the wrath of God for their sin through eternal conscious punishment in hell. That is what every human being, except for Jesus, rightly deserves. And that is the worst thing that can ever happen to you. Man, some of you don't believe that, though. Some of you think the worst thing that could ever happen to you has to do with your money or your health, your status, your looks, your education, your family. Man, those things are important. The worst thing that could ever happen to you is that you would justly pay for your sins in hell forever. And that's what you deserve. But you don't have to. You don't have to. Can you imagine? Like people, like people act like we're, we're crazy and stupid and archaic and weird. Can you imagine if someone said to you, the worst thing that could ever happen to anybody, like you're headed there, but you don't have to. This is the good news. This is the gospel. But like Ruth, you must repent and believe. That's the condition of the gospel. And that's what Ruth did. How do I know that's what Ruth did? Ruth left Moab. Naomi said, go back to your gods. Go back to your idolatry. And Ruth said, no, your God is my God. Boaz tells us, he says, Ruth took refuge under the wings of Yahweh. Ruth repented of her Moabite-ness. Ruth is Israel now. Ruth is a follower. She believes in the promise. You too must repent of your sin. You must turn away. You must say, like Ruth did, it's true. What God says about me is true. I have sinned in thought, word, and deed by what I have done and by what I have left undone. I deserve hell for my sins forever. You have to understand that. Because if you say that you have no sin... You're, a, you're making God a liar. You're deceived. We must repent and trust in Jesus alone. And if you repent and if you believe, you will have peace with God. You will. Pastor Kevin read it from Romans 5.1 in our call to worship. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just explain that to you for, for one second. To be justified by faith means to be made right with God, by faith alone. And faith is made up of three facets, knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge means you understand the facts. You understand who Jesus is and what Jesus did. You understand that God is holy, that you're a sinner, and that through Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection alone, you can be made right with God. You need that knowledge. That's why we rehearse it every single week here at church. That is, that's what we live and die on. But that knowledge is not enough. You must also assent to the validity of those truth claims. You have to think they're true. 
You, you cannot be so progressive as to say, well, I know all the facts about Jesus. It doesn't really matter whether it happened or not. It doesn't really matter if we believe in the virgin birth or the resurrection. That's not Christianity. You must assent that these things are true. But even beyond that, that's not enough. You have to trust in it. That means that you know in your heart that if you were to die and stand before God right now and he were to say, why should you live forever with me in perfection, that your only answer would be because Jesus died for my sins. And because Jesus rose again, you're not going to say, well, I did this, well, I did that, well, I'm better than that. If, you, if that's your answer, then you're not trusting in Jesus. You need the knowledge, you need the assent, and you need the trust. Because in Jesus, and in Jesus alone, we have peace with God forever. In Jesus alone, we have peace with each other. Church, we're talking about peace. Pastor Kevin so skillfully lit that second candle this morning. Did you see that work? He did a good job. This is the peace candle. We, the most important the most important relationship that we need peace is vertical, right? I can't, we've done that through the whole service. I can't emphasize it enough. I'm begging you, if you're not a Christian, come to Jesus. That's number one. That's the most important. But then it's, it's horizontal, right? Because the two commandments are to love the Lord your God and then to love your neighbor as yourself. So the gospel creates peace among God's people. Listen, we understand the church, our church, Christ Community Church is made up of all sorts of people who probably wouldn't hang out with each other based on likes or opinions, okay? We'll just be honest about that. That's okay. We don't have to run from that. We don't have to pretend like we're all best friends and we all were rooting as hard as possible for Michigan yesterday because I know Pastor Zach probably wasn't, but, but I still love him, you know? But in Christ, church, we are unified around the most important thing in life. The gospel creates peace. And listen, in Jesus, so in Jesus, that's the important prepositional phrase there. You can't leave that one out. In Jesus, okay? In Christ, we have peace with God. We have peace with each other. And in Christ, the world will finally know peace again. Because when Jesus comes back at his second advent, and, and listen, that's important affirmation. If you don't believe this, you're not a Christian. Jesus is physically and visibly going to return to the earth to raise the dead, judge the world, and make all things new. Right? That's going to happen. And when that happens, Jesus will consummate the new creation, and sin and death will be no more. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more divorce. There will be no more loneliness. There will be no natural disasters. There will be no more fighting about politics. There will be no more chronic pain. There will be no more jealousy. There will be no more complaining. There will be no more sin. That's a world worth imagining. Jesus is our Redeemer who restores peace between God and his people at his first advent, and Jesus will restore peace to the world at his second advent. The soul can never know peace apart from Jesus. This world can never know peace apart from Jesus. And because that's true, John Lennon's imagine really is not the consummate symbol of the pursuit of world peace. 
If you want to sing about genuine peace, you'd be better off singing these words that we sang earlier. Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. Born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would bring peace to this room. Father, for anyone who is sitting with your church this morning who has not believed in the good news of Jesus, we would ask that you would justify them by faith alone and that they would have peace with you. Father, we ask that you would grant peace to Christ Community Church, that we would not be a people who complain, that we would not be a people who gossip, that we would not be a people who are jealous of one another, that we would not be a people who don't cheerfully give. Father, we know that the gospel has flattened the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile and that the gospel can create peace between all people, regardless of where we come from and regardless of what we look like and regardless of how much money we have. Father, we ask for peace. And Lord, we finally ask for world peace. But we know that world peace isn't going to come through denying heaven or hell. And that world peace isn't going to come through eliminating geopolitical borders or eliminating financial systems. Father, this world will only know peace when your son Jesus returns. And so on this second Sunday of Advent, as we think about peace, our prayer is, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Church rock.